Well, as we uh, get started, I want you to visualize a few things with me. And if it's helpful, you can even close your eyes as we do this. First, I want you to visualize that uh, we've gone back a couple months and it's July 30th in Poland. And there's a sea of people, a vast crowd of people, all wandering out into a meadow. And as they're going there, they're all in the scorching heat of the summer, but they're eagerly anticipating this evening. And as evening comes and it cools off, Pope Francis walks out into view of the entire crowd and praise erupts. Now journey with me back to the States and we're here in the States. In fact, you are local and so you've taken your family down to Long Beach to ride the Ferris wheel. And as your car starts to circle around the top, You look across Shoreline Village and you see a great crowd of thousands of people. And they're there. There's a great festival going on. And what grabs your attention most is a pride parade coming down the road. There are rainbow flags that wave almost as high as you are in the sky. And people are unabashedly and unashamedly just reveling in their alternate lifestyle in the road. And then I want you to even bring it home closer. You just got out of second service here at Grace. And usually it's your custom where after church you would hang around, fellowship some, talk to people. But today, your fellowship is somewhat interrupted because as you exit the building, there's a line outside, a great group of people. And they're homeless, and you know that because your senses tell you so. At the same time, you recognize that some of them have been abusing alcohol and drugs. But they're here at Grace because they've been invited, and some of your fellow men are going to be serving them lunch. What do you see, or what did you see in all of those circumstances? And then how did you feel? What did you feel after that? Lastly, I would ask, what would you do in any of those scenarios? If you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at a moment in Christ's life. The text will be in Matthew 9, 35 down to 38. Under the title, The Harvest is Plentiful and the Labors of Few in Your Bible. And uh, just read with me, Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, just as Matthew 4, 23 would essentially be introducing to us Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 
to 7, this here is almost the identical statement that after Jesus had called his disciples or four of them, James and John and Peter and Andrew, said, I'll make you fishers of men. Then it says he went out throughout all the regions, all the cities, all the villages, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. We have the identical text here, and it leads us into chapter 10, where he will mobilize them. And so what we essentially have is an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and then we have an introduction to his sermon on mission. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on Mission both begin by saying that Jesus is going throughout all the cities and all the villages, and he's proclaiming the gospel, and he's also healing every disease. The first is meant to teach us Christian living. And the second would be meant to teach us what we might call missional living. And so verse 35 gives us a summary of what Jesus was engaged in. And then verses 36 to 38 report a specific incident on one of those occasions where he looked out and he saw the multitudes. Maybe they were even coming toward him. And at that sight... He told his disciples to do something, gave them a charge. In considering this passage, I want us to be challenged individually as well as corporately as much as we can uh, to, to share the passion and perspective of Jesus. The title of this sermon is Christ-like Compassion, but ultimately what I want to say is that we need to see like Jesus sees. We need to feel like Christ feels so that we will do as he does. Maybe after studying a passage like this, you run back and dig up your old, what would Jesus do, bracelets. And this time it wouldn't be as a a cultural fad for contemporary Christianity, but it'll be a reminder of the Christ-like compassion. Reminder of how he acts and what he does. And so as we engage, I would ask you to just join me in a word of prayer before we get to our first point. Father, thank you that we have such grace from you to learn of you and be taught by you directly from your word. We ask you this morning that as we look at the life of Jesus and his compassion, that it would mobilize us, mobilize us to mimic him and his character and in his deeds. Lord, I pray for all of us who are listening that our hearts would be pricked and that we would be moved and that we would want to extend mercy to those who are around us and be more committed to your mission. In Christ's name and for his sake, we pray. Amen. And so if we're going to see like Jesus sees and feel like Jesus feels and we're going to do as Jesus does, the first thing that we need to do is to see like he saw. If you look back in your Bibles, it says that as Jesus is going throughout all the cities and villages, that's an important statement in and of itself, that he was going throughout the prominent places, the affluent places, and he was also going to the obscure and the needy. It wasn't just something that was couched in where he wanted to go, but he went throughout the entire region. And as he was going through the region, he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's preaching the gospel among the prosperous and the impoverished alike, He's healing diseases and afflictions in every one of his encounters. And it's in this context, 
in this context that he gazes at the masses of humanity. And he calls to mind two images. The first of shepherdless sheep. And the second as a harvest, bountiful and ready for the reaping. The first thing that Jesus saw is he saw the great needs of lost people. When Jesus saw the multitudes as shepherdless sheep, it was that he saw them uncared for and vulnerable. He saw them without help. He saw them in danger. Harassed and helpless is what our text shows for us. They appear to him exactly like abandoned sheep. They're all matted. They are beaten up. They're limping from one desperation to another. The words used here are very strong. He's essentially saying that they are destitute. Matthew wants us to picture these hunted down and flayed sheep. Exhausted. They're uh, exhausted by endless wandering and they need nothing as much as they need a good shepherd. Harassed is about as good a translation as we're going to get, but helpless could be better translated as cast down with violent action like Judas when he threw down or he hurled the money in the sanctuary. We need to see them not just as victims of uh, ordinary circumstances, but mistreated and misused. Literally, this is happening to them. The immediate context of Jesus' perception is the Jews. He's on his Galilean mission, and he's looking out over the house of Israel. And he sees them as shepherdless sheep. Those Pharisees and those religious leaders who were given to them and were supposed to be feeding them were actually feeding off of them. They're mistreating them. And this has very strong Old Testament roots. In Numbers 27, you might remember that Moses actually prays toward the end of his life that God would send a replacement so that the people would not be left like sheep without a shepherd. And then in 1 Kings 22, Micaiah predicted the death of King Ahab. And the way that he did that was he said, I saw all Israel spread out over all the hillsides like sheep without a shepherd. It's not customary for sheep to not have a shepherd. And for Israel to be left without that kind of direction was a great curse and not a good thing. Turn with me in your Bibles. The prophet Ezekiel, he wrote an entire chapter against the false shepherds and against those who are mistreating the sheep. Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we read these words. Beginning in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep 
or scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. In Jesus' day and in his perspective, the religious leaders have been misusing, mishandling, and misleading the sheep. You got all these Jews there, and he sees them, and the first thing that he sees is that they are lost. They need direction. And those who were given to them and were supposed to be those who were leading them were actually mistreating them. They were encumbering them with laws and fasts and tithes and clothing. They looked down on them. In their eyes, they're just, just commoners, not anybody to be regarded or especially not anyone that deserves attention. But when Jesus sees them, he sees them as lost sheep who need a shepherd. Harassed and helpless, they're in need. You picture a sheep. We don't know much about it because we're not in that culture. Most of us are city folks. But if you know anything about sheep is that if they fall over, they can't help themselves to get up. Legs be kicking in the air and everything else, but they can't get up, right? They're dumb sheep. That's where the word comes from, dumb, literally. And this is how he sees the people. They're lost. They're distressed this way. Outwardly, they might seem comfortable. When we look out, we need to see that. Even if we see people who are rich as all get out, they have everything put together, a nice family, nice house, nice cars. They're lost if they do not have Christ and they do not have a shepherd. Legs up as they were, unable to pick themselves up out of their sin. They may look normal externally, but inwardly, inwardly, they do not have the Lord. And as Paul describes them in Ephesians 2, they're without hope and without God in the world. Jesus saw lost people as distressed, just like this. It points to the load of problems that people have. If if you're ever out in public, if you just look at people for long enough, you can just see that they're just loaded down with burdens, loaded down with problems. And sometimes you might even see people who are emboldened in their false teaching. I had a situation just a few weeks ago where it was a knock on the door on a Saturday morning. I was studying and preparing for another message. And my kids said, hey, dad, somebody's at the door. I looked at the clock. I'm like, okay, I know exactly who it is. So I opened the door. Hey, how you doing this morning? I'm just here to talk to you about God. Absolutely. Let's do it. I want to invite you to a convention. What kind of convention? A Christian convention. You're a Christian? Yeah, really? Yeah, we're Jehovah's Witness. Skirt? No, you're not. And so I started to engage him and explain to him how his works would not add up or merit any salvation. Now, this is a 15-year-old boy with his 50-some-odd dad who's standing behind him, not saying anything. And he began to listen to me. And I just engaged with him, and I reasoned with him the difference between because of and in order to. I go and I witness just like you do. But I don't do that in order to merit God's favor. I do it because of God's grace. And so I reasoned with him, but you know why I could engage him this way? Because I saw him as lost. I told him, don't listen to your father. Listen to the heavenly father. Read the Bible that's in your hand, even though that translation is not trustworthy. I guarantee you, if you ask God to reveal himself to you, he will do that. The reason why I could do that is because I saw the boy as lost. I saw him as a lost sheep. His need for the good shepherd who lays his life down the sheep was what was paramount in my mind. Now, at the same time, I saw opportunity, and this kind of leads us to the next point. The boy was ripe. 
Jesus saw not only sheep without a shepherd, but in your text it says that he saw a great harvest of lost people. The harvest was ready. This ought to really motivate us regarding to what we're doing and what we're engaged in. That Jesus says the multitude are people, they're ready to come in. It's not just great fields, but it's white fields. The fields are ready to be reaped and picked. Boundless possibilities from sheep to a ripe harvest to be gathered is what Jesus sees. Now, he's been traveling through all of the cities and, and all the regions and all the villages. He's, close, he's up close and personal with people's pain, all of their, uh, their struggling, their suffering. He's right there with them, and he's been healing them. And he sees that they have great needs. And so as he's heralding good news to the poor and even working to fix some of their problems, he sees the volume of work to be done and the harvest to be reaped. He told his disciples in John 4 when they were concerned about what to eat, he said, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. I've got food that you know nothing of. The grand concern for our Lord was the harvest to be reaped. You can't halfway sit at meals across from your children and other family members and friends without seeing a ripe harvest. You can't hardly walk down the streets or go to the grocery store or get after your business in the shop. I introduced Carlos here. He's a barber. That's the reason why he's telling me every day about sharing the gospel, because he's constantly entertaining people who are lost and without hope in the world. Everywhere we look, there's an abundant hard field. Uh, a harvest field. There's fruit that's ready to be picked. What are we going to do? The question, though, before we even get to what we do is, is that what you see? When you go out, when you're among your unbelieving family members, when you're out at the farmer's market, is that what you see? Lost sheep, a great harvest. If your answer is no, which it probably is, or maybe, I wouldn't be surprised because of what else Jesus saw. Another thing that Jesus saw was the great need for workers for the harvest. To him, the harvest is really huge, but the laborers, very few. There's this great and grand opportunity before us. Think about what he says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In Jesus' sight, there's a rich crop of fruit that's about ready to be picked, but it's going to fall to the ground and die and waste for a lack of reapers. In the judgment of our Lord, the harvest is huge, but there's hardly any workers. I think positively speaking, there's so much harvest that this should, literally, we should just see that, hey, everywhere you go, there's an opportunity there. It always presents itself, Right? Every, I mean, you think, if, if we thought this way, I would think that every Bible-believing church and every uh, Bible, gospel-believing community would have signs posted, help wanted, now hiring. Like, we need more help. Come. Because there's a great multitude, not just a great multitude of sinners, but literally a multitude of people who are ready to receive the good news. We need to see it like that, like Jesus saw, a multitude of a harvest that was ripe for the picking. People always ask me questions like, well, wait, why are, you, why are you going to plant another church? Or why do we need another church? And I have to remind them, and in greater Los Angeles, there's 18 million people and counting. If revival broke out and somehow everybody was getting saved, there's only one church for every 22,000 people. 
And that's if we include every church that says church on it. We need more workers. Jesus saw that there was a lack of laborers in his field. You might be discouraged by that, you know. Some people say, well, I mean, there's, there's so many. There's so much. Like, what am I to do? How could I make a difference? And it reminds me of the story of an old guy on the beach. And he's there at dawn, and he looks out, and he sees a young man picking up starfish and flinging them into the sea. And he runs and catches up with him. Hey, man, what are you doing? Hey, well, if the starfish are out here and the sunlight comes, they'll die. So I'm tossing them back into the sea. They get washed up overnight. He looks, and he said, but, man, the beach goes on for miles. And it's millions of them out here. Like, what could your effort ever do? Like, what could it mean to all of that? The young man looks down at the starfish, tosses it in, and says it meant something to that one. Do not be discouraged as you go. Recognize and realize that there is an abundance of opportunity, but you just need to get after it. We need to get after it. Like the men in that story on the converse, Jesus sees only a few people who are willing to go. So it is that he sees an abundance of harvest, which positively is just great. Like, hey, we need more help. We need more help. They're coming in. But at the same time, there's, a sim- there's somewhat of an unwillingness, if you would. I think most of us in this room need the reminder because we're here, part of church plan, whether it's been three years or just now or whatever that is. For the most part, we need to be reminded of the fact that this is what we've been called to. We didn't just start a new church or go to join a new church so that we could be shaking hands and kissing babies. I think we got it wrong if we think that we're going to join a new church plan so we can have a new church with new friends and new music and all of those things should serve the means that we want to plant a church, meaning we're going to raise up a gospel-believing community of people from out of the harvest. We're not transplanting a church. We're planting a new church and seeking to reap a rich harvest. But that won't happen until we start seeing as Jesus sees and also feeling as Jesus felt. You can look back at your Bibles, but it's almost uh, the most glaring thing here. When Jesus found the shepherdless sheep without Christ in the world, he sees that they're lost. And our text says that he's moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion at the sight of the multitude. This is an interesting Greek word. The truth of the matter is is it's only used by the apostles. They had to coin a word to describe what they saw. It doesn't say that Jesus said, hey, I'm feeling really compassionate. I have compassion. It says that Matthew saw him and he was moved with compassion. He's trying to describe to us the gut-wrenching feeling that he was feeling way deep down for the people. He suffers with them. He was moved because he was right alongside them, right there with them. To him, the people themselves are of deepest interest. He feels for them and his heart goes out for them, not just to his favorites or not just to a select, refined, polished few, but to the multitude. The sorrows of the people are Christ's own sorrows. Their miseries are his mercy. They become his mercy because he's engaging with them. He feels for them in their condition and he's eager to help them. Because Jesus actually suffers with people, because he actually suffers with people, he institutes mission to them. 
We must remember that he's not doing this because of how bad they are. He's not saying, oh my goodness, I need to just clean this thing up. When people's sins or their wickedness is what actually uh, motivates us toward mission, if we blanket that out, I think what we actually do, instead of fanning or igniting compassion, we smother it out. You remember Psalm 103? It says he knows that we are but dust. God knows our depravity. He knows that we are destitute. He knows our situation. But that didn't call him toward condemning us. More so, he left his throne. He took on flesh. He lived and he died in our place as our substitute. Mission accomplished for Jesus is not when he comes and he preaches at people and leaves them where they are, but more so he absorbs our suffering. When was the mission accomplished? It wasn't when the hammer banged down the last nail or when the Romans' guards had stuck him in the side or even when they uh, mocked him and stripped him naked. Mission accomplished, according to John 19.30, is when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What is finished? That when he had drank the full cup of God's wrath, wrath that was stored up for a robber who's justly, justly hanging next to him. Wrath that was meant and had been merited by who? A centurion who stood at the foot of the cross and crucified him. When he drank the full cup of God's wrath, Jesus' mission was accomplished. He absorbs the guilt of the robber, and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. It's when Christ breathes his last. He gives up his life that the centurion comes to his senses, and he says, Surely this was the Son of God. Christ had absorbed even his sin. I think we need to see and we need to feel like Jesus When we look at those who are deceived by false doctrine, most of the time we look with contempt. But Jesus sees those who are lost and he has compassion. We might even look out and see transgender and we look. We curl our lips up or we look with condemnation. But Jesus sees harassed human traffic and he has compassion. When we look out and we see uh, a homeless man in the middle of the street, we cut away and we distance ourselves like the Levites in Luke chapter 10. But Jesus, the true good Samaritan, he moves toward him. He sees him as a man who is helpless, who's made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and he sacrifices for him. We see prostitutes. We're disgusted. But Jesus sees a ripe harvest ready to be picked. As Matthew would have us understand, missional living isn't this enterprise that we embark on to clean up the streets and shape up the world. It's disciples seeing the needs of people and moving to meet those needs Because they feel the pain, they go out and they compassionately help those in need by presenting them with their shepherd. It's only when we see and feel like Jesus that we will do as Jesus did. 
And the question is, what did he do? He said, the harvest is really huge, but there are hardly any workers. So pray. He calls us to pray. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest so that he might send out workers into his harvest. And he commands us to pray. And this is not anything that Jesus himself has not done. We would be remiss to think that the Son of Man is not praying for more laborers to go out into the harvest. Why? Because this is the reason why he came. What he tells his disciples to do is to do the same. He says, pray earnestly. Literally, he's telling them to beg God. When was the last time you begged God for something? When was the last time you begged God for more missionaries, more pastors, more churches, more gospel communities to sprout up and to go out into the harvest to reap the fruit that is there? He's telling us to beg God earnestly. We need to pray like there's no tomorrow for Christians to enter God's ripe harvest. In commanding them to pray, Jesus hones in on who it is that they're to pray to. He says, the Lord, the Lord of the harvest. It's God's harvest. It's his field. The field belongs to him. The people are his and the produce belongs to him. What does 1 Corinthians 3, 7 tell us? That it's one who waters, another who plants, but it's God who brings about the increase. So pray to the Lord of the harvest. He wants us to be reminded of just who it is that we're even talking to. And then he commands them to pray as Jesus does. I'm sorry, uh, pray. uh, and, And he tells them why they're to pray. He tells them why they're to pray. That he might send out laborers into his harvest. And I know, you know, we, some of us, we believe in the sovereignty of God and we see things like this and we don't really give it the attention that we need to. We need to understand that Jesus is literally saying, you need to pray so that God will send. That one is attached to the other and dependent on the other. How that all works out, we will find out when we get there. But we need to pray like it depends on it. That he would send out workers, literally that he would thrust out workers, the same word used to cast out a demon or drive out an evil spirit from a man. We're supposed to be praying that Jesus would kick more people out of here into his mission. That seriously. That's what our desire is. We need to be praying that God would send people into the harvest, and that's serious business. Praying like we mean it and like we believe it. Oh, Lord, would you send more workers, send more workers, plant more churches. And is that it? The end? Is that where the story stops? Absolutely not. We're better Bible students than that. We know that it's in these times it's very important to ignore your chapter divisions. Chapter 10, verse 1, and it's after he said this to his disciples, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And he names the 12. You can jump down with me after that to verse 5. 
And these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his field. And then he calls his disciples to them and he sends them out into the field. God still works this way. Sometimes when we're praying about something or we're moved to pray about something, he's really just softening our hearts to be praying about that which he wants us to be used for. I know pastors, many pastors that were praying for a pastor to be sent, and then they end up all of a sudden having this unction to go. I know that's how a lot of missionaries get out on the field. You spend time praying, oh, God, there's an unreached people group in this town in, uh, in Asia or in Africa, or somewhere in Latin America. It won't be long before your heart beats for the same thing, and God will thrust you out into that mission. To close, I have a story. It's a personal story. In about 2006, 2007, I was brought back together with one of my closest friends growing up in childhood. From elementary to uh, high school age, me and Chris Bates, we hung out every summer, knew each other really well. And this time when I got reunited with him, I saw that he was a believer. So it was like our fellowship, like we got real fellowship now. Our connection is amazing. And like literally, we just started talking all the time. We're just, I mean, to this day, I can say to you unequivocally that I talk to him every day because we're in a group text message. And so for the last 10 years, still been talking to him. But the one thing that struck me when I got back into fellowship with Chris Bates was that he had this greeting on his phone And sometimes when I would call him, I would miss him. And this is what his greeting would say. Hey, you reach Bates. I'm unavailable to pick up the phone right now. Leave a message and I'll get back to you. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray how the Lord might use you. Every time I called him, that greeting gripped my heart. It wasn't long before I used to pray like that. God, how do you want to send me? The harvest is plentiful. Where do you want me to go? And I believe wholeheartedly that I am where I am and even going where I'm going because of prayers like that. It was that message and those prayers that catapulted me deeper into the mission of God, into the rich harvest field. My hope is that it would be this message and your prayers that would drive you deeper into seeing how Jesus sees, feeling how he feels, and in doing as he does. And in fact, in this moment, I just want to take a time for us to all pray. Right there in your seat. Some of you will pray out loud, just asking the Lord to send out more laborers and praying. And after we do that, I'll close us after a season of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can have confidence that when we pray according to your will, we can ask anything and it will be done. And so we ask in Jesus' name that you will send more laborers and we even avail ourselves. God, we give you the honor and the praise and the glory that is due your name. And we just ask, Lord, that as there are your lost sheep among every tribe and nation and language, that they would be gathered in by more reapers, there will be more laborers. 
pray for the church in Africa, Lord. I'm just led to pray for our friends who are there who are seeing a tremendous influx of people, tired of the deception of Islam and uh, tired of uh, the misuse and mishandling of, of spiritism, just looking for grace. I thank you that there are shepherds there who are faithful to proclaim the gospel and also to meet the needs of those who have them. And I just pray, God, that you would multiply more and more in Congo, in Northern Africa, in East Africa, in South Africa. And also, Lord, all around the world, we give you honor, we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.